I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? Michael, please don't say for God. Toto? Yes, it's called a motor race, okay? Toto, we went to car racing. Rivalry? What rivalry? Red Bull are charging off into the sunset and it doesn't look likely to change. It's the Stappen party and everyone's crying if they want to. Have the Mercedes fans seriously not stopped crying yet? Hmm. One half down, the other yet to come. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast, and I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer, serial podcaster Joe Spagnoli, and the mysterious F1 Twitter menace, Unpaid Intern. So, we are halfway through. Summer break is over. The fun is done. We're ready to get back down to business, and we've got a triple header coming our way, chaps. How are we feeling after after our summer breaks? Did everyone have a good time, Ed? Very nice, actually. I was sunning myself in the south of France, writing your tweet about legislations. Uh, but yeah, ready to go finish off what is the remaining you know, nine or so races. Should be a good treble header this week. Start of a good treble header before we go into the really nitty gritty of the the flyaways, which will be long and tiring for us all. In turn, did you enjoy having two weeks off of F1 and are you ready for this triple header? Are you mentally prepared? I mean, I, I wish they'd extend the break because it's been the most peaceful two weeks of my life. You get me? I've I've had a good time. I mean, breaks in F1 aren't anything to me because I watch so many other motorsports. But now that the break's over and everyone's ready to get back, it's interesting to see how things will be not just the mentality of the drivers and the teams but also the the technical regulations that will be coming in for spa very true very true we've certainly got an interesting second half of the season lined up for sure mr spagnoli are you feeling good about this triple header or are you already exhausted because i kind of feel like i am 
I was kind of exhausted going into the summer break. I didn't realise just how much I needed it, but I still had IndyCar and MotoGP to tide me over. It's been great just not to have to worry about Formula One for a few weeks. Really looking forward to it, although that's probably got a lot more to do with the tracks and drivers than it has any either of the title battles, because let's be honest, there just isn't going to be one in either the drivers or the constructors. No, probably not. As I've already pointed out, it's uh, it's looking a bit like another Red Bull championship, really, isn't it? But let's talk about our top seven drivers so far of the season, where we are in the standings right now. So on that vein, Mr. Max Verstappen currently sitting at 258 points, which is rather massive. In turn, it's been a pretty good first half of the season. First few races aside, I think once they got those um, those reliability issues out of the way, Max Verstappen's just been flying a bit, hasn't he? I mean, he was flying even with the issues. I mean, said it before publicly, I think he's the best driver in Formula One. And when we started off the podcast and, you know, they asked who's going to win the championship, I put him down because I'm like, if if 2021 was anything to go by, if he can do that with a car that's close to a Mercedes with Lewis Hamilton, then surely if he has a car that's better than the whole grid, he'll cakewalk it. Obviously, it hasn't been smooth sailing. There, there's been the reliability issues. There's There's been things like Monaco where he came third. He's had a couple setbacks this year, but I mean, he hasn't really put a foot wrong at all this year, has he? He's nailed it. Maybe he could have won a couple more polls, but... I would rather have three poles and eight wins than eight poles and three wins. He has gotten the points where he's needed to get them. He's made minimal errors. Precisely, precisely. Ed, Joe, Max Verstappen, killing it, no? Absolutely. I think he is driving at a much better level than he was in 2021, which was already a very high level. And he's really, he's really getting the maximum out of the RB18, which is... For me, at least, the second best car at the moment. But you watch the wins in Miami, barely any practice time. Struggled in qualifying. Stonking win. Imola dominates the entire weekend on Ferrari's home turf. Uh, you look at, let's have a think, races like Hungary. That was incredible. Like the fact that he spun, qualified 10th, and he still wins a race. Shows how well he's driving at the moment. I would say it's been flawless and I just cannot see him losing this championship. But even though I predicted Charles at the start of the year, I really have to hold my hands up. Verstappen has been Red Bull's trump card. He was moderately outbattled by Leclerc in Bahrain. He had a slightly off weekend in Monaco. What else has the guy gotten wrong? The idea that this is an error-prone driver, prone to crashing overly aggressive, it's nonsense. He is so far clear of any other driver in this sport so far this year. Hamilton, how, no matter how great he's been in the last few weeks, nowhere near Max Verstappen's level. And as for Charles Leclerc, he has objectively got the fastest car in Formula 1. The Super Times reveal quite clearly a gap between the Ferrari and the Red Bull in second place. But even on competitive weekends where the Ferrari isn't immolating itself, Verstappen always has something special. He has not had an awful weekend this year. There is no other driver that you can say that about. While we're on the subject, currently sitting in second with uh, 178 points, quite a sizable gap is our young man, Charles Leclerc. Let's try not to just shit talk Ferrari for the next 45 minutes, but we should probably discuss 
young Mr. Leclerc. I'm going to come straight back to you, Joe, because I know you've always got a lot to say about this, but very disappointing, isn't it, from where we saw him at the beginning of the season and absolutely not the kind of gap that I thought we were going to have at this point. I thought it was going to be much closer. To think in Bahrain that people were actually saying that this would be a year where Verstappen was the best driver, but Red Bull would be the ones letting him down. How unbelievably stupid those people look right about now. Leclerc's been great. I don't think it's unfair to say he's been the second best driver in Formula One so far this year, even with his mistakes. But ignoring the Ferrari complaints just for a few minutes, it's not like Leclerc hasn't made them. Imola is 100% on him. That was a guaranteed podium that only he threw away. And as for France, I'm afraid that the defence that, you know, Ferrari kept him out on those tyres for too long, it just doesn't hold water with the way he crashed midway through Lebose. That was on him. That's 25 points. At the very least, 18 lost directly against Max Verstappen. Sure, Ferrari are the main component of the gap between him and Max, but Leclerc has to take responsibility for his mistakes. In turn, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. This this man's season has not been what it could have been. Well, I'll be the first to say Lee Clark's errors in no way are surprising to me. When I say he's an error-prone driver, people think that means that he just crashes every race. That's absolutely not what I mean. When I say he's error-prone, well, I shouldn't even say error-prone. I feel like that's probably a bit too far. But... From what I've seen from him in his career, he is capable of making mistakes like this, like what we saw in Imola, like what we saw in France. And France is, France is still mad to me. Like, the walls in Paul Ricard are so far away, man. You know, like, <laughs> how do you find them? You know, like, you know how hard you have to spin to, to reach all the way and maintain a speed big enough to, to hit that wall and do terminal damage? That's crazy, man. But... <sighs> I mean, it hasn't been all bad. I mean, his one-lap pace is still good, you know? Ferrari still have let him down, whether it be strategy or the car blowing up. The gap isn't 80 points because he's made mistakes. Obviously, a couple of them have hampered him, but I, I wouldn't put this whole season as a failure down to him. And it's not even over yet, you know? I don't think he's going to make back 80 points for the rest of the season, but it doesn't mean he's just going to be garbage for the, the second half. Maybe he'll cook. Maybe he'll cook and we all come back here at the end and say, man, what if the first half wasn't that bad? So yeah, that's what I have to say about um, Charles Leclerc so far this year. I don't think it's really his fault that he's so far behind in the championship race. I think if you look at Imola and France, you could definitely say, yeah, okay, it was his fault. And I think he would openly hold his hands up. But if you look at the performances in Australia, you look at performances in Bahrain, he was fantastic. And he is a great driver and he's doing great at Ferrari. It's just the team is not exactly giving him what he fully needs. And that's why he's 80 points behind and will probably that gap will probably be extended further on as we go into the season because penalties are still to come. You can say that again, my friend. Now, third in our lineup is Mr. Sergio Perez, who... I appreciate it's having clearly a good season, sat in third right now. Good for him. I would say apart from his win in Monaco, which was lovely to see, I, I don't feel like I've been noticing him that much during races. I don't know. I, I don't feel like he's having a particularly momentous season, a particularly exciting season. He's just quietly doing well and performing and obviously doing great things for Red Bull in the constructors as well. But in turn, thoughts on Mr. Perez, our Mexican friend? For Perez, he's had a decent season. 
I definitely think he looks more comfortable with the car this year than he did last year. I mean, pole in Jeddah, first pole ever. And, and to get to get that at a track like Jeddah is very impressive to me. Um, obviously, as the win in Monaco, which obviously wasn't on pure pace, but still, you still have to be in that position to to capitalize. And, you know, races like Spain, I mean, he didn't win them, but he was, he was still there, you know. So, yeah, I mean, Sergio's been fine this year. He, too, has had reliability issues. He didn't finish Bahrain and he didn't finish Canada. I think P2 in the standings is still possible for him. I think he might be able to give Leclerc a run for his money if Red Bull improve. If Red Bull have the out-and-out fastest car, I definitely see him beating Leclerc. Well, he's only five points behind Leclerc right now, which is pretty damn close. So I, I would foresee your prediction coming true, to be honest. The others are a little bit further behind, but you never know. You would never know what Mercedes have up their sleeves, so we shall see. Mr. Spencer, how do you feel like Mr. Perez's season is going? I think you're being incredibly harsh. I think Perez has been quite unlucky this season. Um, if you look at Jeddah, he was on pole. He was leading well. The safety car screwed him over. In Spain, I think he would have won if Team Orders hadn't happened. I think in Silverstone, if he hadn't had that contact at the start with the clerk, he could have easily picked off science and won in Silverstone. So that's two, that's three wins gone, really. Adding to the Monaco win, he'd be right in this championship fight. I think Perez has sometimes underwhelmed a little bit, particularly in Austria when... I think he got slightly squeezed out by Russell, but that's being me. I'm not a driver steward. And in France, where he did get nutmegged by the same driver for the podium. But I think it's been a fairly good first half of the season. It's just a couple of little things, like maybe his qualifying isn't always perfect. But Checo has sometimes struggled with qualifying. But overall, it's a massive improvement on where he was last year, which was... Well, people were questioning whether he would have a future at Red Bull. Very true. You're right. I probably have been a little bit harsh and maybe I'm just paying attention to other people more than I'm paying attention to Perez. But 100% he's been very consistent. And I mean, the fact that he's third in the driver's standings right now absolutely proves that. Even in the context of some fairly disappointing race weekends since that victory in Monaco, which, by the way, was 100% deserved, Leclerc strategy errors notwithstanding, um, he's actually still improved an awful lot relative to last year. Now, granted, he was incredibly average last year, very disappointing. But this year, the qualifying gap to Max has come down. The flat-out pace to Max has come down, even in the context of the last few races. Tyre conservation, he hasn't been showing as much, but that's because the RB18 absolutely shreds its rubber far too quickly. Um, he's been fine. He's not been incredible but let's be honest, stick any other driver in the second Red Bull with their team dynamics. Would they be doing better than Sergio Perez? Probably not. And if they were, that would only cause problems. Given the situation in that team, 100%, I can't see anyone else being able to do what Perez is doing in that seat right now. And you're right, his qualifying times are much better. He used to be pretty horrendous on a Saturday, all things considered, and he's doing quite well this year. Now, we're going to move on to a different team and we're going to have our first Mercedes driver in the driver's standings, which, much to probably many people's surprise, is Mr. George Russell on 158 points, sat comfortably in fourth there. Carlos Sainz creeping up on him behind two points behind. But so far, I'd say pretty impressive first season with Mercedes for George Russell. In turn, 
I know you've had your issues with Mr. George Russell in the past. George Mickey Mouse Russell, you once dubbed the man. But pretty good first season at Mercedes. I know you've changed your mind about him this year, but I'd love to get your thoughts about where he is. I mean, what can I say? He's cooked. But he's also been cooked. The first half of the first half was looking pretty good, but I was out here questioning if they were really putting experiments on Hamilton's car, if you were really that guy. But clearly, clearly they've pulled the pin on Lewis's car and he's shown you levels occasionally. But I don't mean you, that doesn't mean Russell isn't good. Because a top five in every race this year, given Merck's issues, well, at least every race he's finished, because I ain't going to pretend like Silverstone didn't happen. I don't care if he jumped out the car. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's performed very well. Scored his first pole as well, which was very, very unexpected. I didn't see that coming at all. I saw two green sectors. I go, guess P3? No, P1. He's really been like that consistent point scorer that Mercedes need. These top fives he's been getting is one of the main reasons why Mercedes are as close to Ferrari in the in the constructors as they are right now. They're very, very close to them. Props to him. Props indeed. Props indeed. Mr. Spagnoli, how are we feeling about George Russell so far? I'm, to be honest, very impressed. And maybe that's a bit of British bias coming through. But how do you see him doing? He has been somewhat fortuitous. I mean, a lot of his top five finishes can be explained by the fact that the Mercedes engine doesn't explode when all three of the other power units are combustible. This team has no reliability DNFs this year. That is something very unique at the start of a new technical era with new fuel, etc., there have also been instances where he's managed to outfinish Lewis Hamilton based on absolutely nothing beyond like a fortuitous safety car timing. I think it was Miami was one particular example, as was Albert Park. Russell benefited massively at the expense of Lewis Hamilton. Aside from that, though, I mean, it's difficult to criticise him that much. The man literally got a pole position at Hungary in what was the third fast has been the third fastest car throughout this year. He's done well in qualifying, not outright destroying Lewis, but definitely living up to his Mr. Saturday tag. Racecraft seems pretty good, pounces on opportunities when they arise. He's been about as good as Mercedes could have hoped for. And in the context of how things went down at the beginning of, at the end of last year, rather, maybe they're regretting not promoting him a year earlier, much though I love Bottas. I could not have said that better myself, to be honest, and I share your love of Mr. Valtteri. Mr. Spencer, pretty good first half for Mr. Russell, I'd say, but what say you? I would agree. I think it's been a pretty good start to life at Mercedes. Um, as Joe said, I think he should have been given a little bit of an earlier uh, promotion, but hindsight's twenty twenty, And he was getting the most out of the Mercedes throughout, I would say, the first 11 races. He seemed more comfortable than, first 12, I should say, than uh, Lewis, who was seemingly struggling. Although there were rumours at the time that he was a guinea pig for Mercedes to test out new setups, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think he's done really, really well. The pole lap was great in Hungary. He's been getting a shed load of podiums. He's really been showing that his promise that we all believed he had at Williams, but he couldn't really show it because the car wasn't quite up to his level. So, yeah, good start to life for, for young Russell. The only blemish I would say on his record was probably that rather silly move he made in, in Austria, but I would say it was probably a 50-50. Shout out to his driver, Imla, from outside the top 10 to finish P5. That was P4, I should say. That was pretty awesome. 
We're going to move on now to Mr. Carlos Sainz, our Spaniard on the grid. He's sitting just behind George Russell, only two points behind at 156. And I'm going to say it's probably been a bit of a disappointing season for him so far, maybe more so even than Mr. Leclerc, because he's been let down quite a few times. And I just, it seems like he's really struggling and he's not happy with where he is. And I think the problem with strategy, the issues that they've been having do seem, from what I can see, to have been taking their toll on him a little bit. I've seen him struggle in some media interviews trying to back the team and not let on that he's deeply disappointed with how things are going. But Mr. Spagnoli, how do you feel like Carlos' season is going? Because to me, it just seems like just nonstop pain. He's turned it on more recently, like getting that first pole position and indeed that first win, although to paraphrase intern, he kind he kind of frauded it. He didn't really do an awful lot to win his first race. If for someone who'd done so well before winning his first race, he really didn't have to do much to come home first that afternoon. But I mean, he started out pretty damn badly. Qualifying battle, although it's gotten better recently, he was getting annihilated by Charles Leclerc. For as much as Carlos Sainz can point to Ferrari and say, you guys have screwed me over, reliability DNFs, bad strategies, blah, blah, blah. He's also nowhere near Leclerc in one lap pace, realistically. So I don't think he can complain about having the title ripped from him, but a couple of uh, wins and podiums by the end of the season, definitely. Ed Spencer, Carlos Sainz. Well, it isn't Stefan Johansson level. It isn't Eddie Irvine level. But it's not good. It really, really hasn't been good to watch. Started well, and then from Jeddah to, I would say Monaco, it's been non-stop disappointment. And you could argue that, you know, Ferrari's strategy didn't help, but he made some absolute stinkers, particularly at Melbourne where he had a bad qualifying and then proceeded to drop it in the gravel. With Sil- with Montreal, that was a win-loss. He didn't have, I don't think he had you know, the confidence to attack Max. I think Silverson, he did get slightly lucky with that win. And also for the fact that, you know, Verstappen had half a car. Leclerc got his strategy completely kiboshed and Perez had to deal with a half-baked front wing. So I don't think this is a season that, first half of the season, that Carlos can be truly happy with. Yeah, he'll be happy with the win, but he has been comfortably outpaced by the clerk and I just don't, I think at a time when, you know, your team leader is performing so well and you're performing so averagely, you're kind of wondering how long have I got in this team? I know he has a contract, but contracts can easily be written, ripped up. We've seen that in recent days with McLaren and Daniel Ricciardo. We're going to talk about seven-time world champion Lewis Hamilton now, who is very unusually sitting at sixth in the Drivers' Championship. So 146 points for Mr. Hamilton does seem to be picking up for him uh, towards the end of the first half of the season. In turn, how do you feel Lewis Hamilton's season is going? Do you see it getting much better after the break? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Imola and Jeddah are a thing of the past now. I think we're seeing the real Lewis now. And I feel bad for even remotely doubting him when those two races took place and I saw him just not doing well. I was like, oh, whoa, maybe he really is finished, man. Maybe Abu Dhabi messed him up mentally. But nah, 
He's still the same seven-time champion that we know and love. He's still the same guy with 103 wins, same guy with 103 poles. Still driving at an elite level. He's been on a mad podiums. Was it five straight podiums before this point that we're at now? Five straight. That's mental, you know? And even when he's had the setbacks, I mean, Hungary could have been a pole. He had to start seventh, I believe. Where did he start in Hungary? Seventh. Still got... P2 in the end. Mental, right? Crashed in Austria, qualifying. Got his head down. Didn't have the best sprint. P3 at the end regardless. That's that's Silverstone showing race winning pace in that W13. That's mental. Packing Perez in, in France on pure pace. This guy's still elite, man. This guy, I wouldn't even put it past him to be P2 in the driver's standings when all is said and done. If Merckx get better and Hamilton is still comfy with this car, I do not put it past him to be P2 in the standings when all is said and done. This run he's been on is mental. He's reminding everybody why he is the arguable goat of this sport. And I think if things get better for him, P2 is not a, P2 is not a stretch at all. I don't think you can count anything out when it comes to Mr. Lewis Hamilton. Joe Spagnoli, it does really seem to be picking up for him now. I'd say, in the, I said Leclerc was, has been the second best driver throughout this season, and I still stand by that. But if you're talking about the last six, seven races, it has been Lewis Hamilton as the second best driver behind Max on weekends where, on the very few weekends where Max has looked less than absolutely optimal, Lewis Hamilton usually has been right up there. Hungary. Had he been able to set that lap in Q3, I'm, I'm confident that Lewis could have at the very least fought for the outright win, if not actually getting it. I was pretty convinced that he was going to get pole position anyway. Um, so, it, okay, so he's had some incredible highs. But as much as Jeddah and Imola are a thing of the past, they did still happen. They are on him. The setup of the car was his responsibility. So, there, I mean, the intern is not one of these people by any means, but those people trying to just completely erase the bad moments from Lewis Hamilton's career to act like he's some kind of infallible greatest of all time. I'm sorry, they did happen, and he bears responsibility for them. He has not been flawless this year, just like he wasn't flawless last year. He's not the best driver in Formula 1 at the moment, but he's still pretty damn incredible. Very, very true indeed. Everyone is human, including Mr. Lewis Hamilton. Ed Spencer, don't you agree? Yes. I think for me that the season really kicked off for Lewis at Canada because that was the first time that I feel that he was really comfortable with the W13. Bahrain, I would say, was a lucky podium. That was because the Red Bulls were dropping boo-boos. That's the only reason he got third. And that he was keeping up the pace. From then on, he has been excellent. Silverstone, bang with the front runners. Austria, he was there, thereabouts. Albeit he made a slight boo-boo in practice. Or, sorry, qualifying. And then France, he was excellent. Hungary, he was excellent. He is still a great driver. That's why he's still fighting for wins in what is not Mercedes' best piece of work. But as Joe says, he did make mistakes in, in Jeddah. He did make mistakes in Imola. He, you know, he has been involved in a couple of first lap incidents, if my memory serves me correctly. One of which being, of course, Barcelona. So, he's not been perfect, but he's still pretty damn good. A, sal- a good salvage job from Lewis. And now we're going to very, very, very quickly, super quickly talk about our seventh driver in the standings. Because, quite frankly, I don't think we need to talk too much. Because the points difference 
between sixth and seventh is massive. We're going from 146 points down to 76 for Mr. Lando Norris. I'd say overall, and I'm talking about the whole team here, not even just this driver, it's been a disappointing season so far for the Papaya cars. There's a massive, massive points gap between Lando and Lewis. I can't see Lando doing any better than seventh, even if things start picking up for the Papayas, to be honest. So super quick thoughts on Mr. Lando Norris. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Spagnoli. He's the only driver, not in a Red Bull Mercedes or um, Ferrari, to score a podium this year. And he deserved it. He deserves every single point that he's had. He managed to get a podium at Imola in what was at that time, probably the fifth, most likely sixth fastest car of 10 he's still been pretty damn incredible. Not as amazing as he was in the first half of last year, but the extent to which he has outperformed Daniel Ricciardo might might well be responsible for McLaren paying Ricciardo $21 million to not drive for them next year. The guy is a damn special talent. McLaren are very, very lucky to have him on such a long-term deal. This is very true. And I know that he's been really struggling with the car this year as well. He said that he's had to adjust his driving style to it. So it was nice to see him get that podium. I know there's been a lot of discussion over whether any other drivers outside of those three teams are going to get any more podiums this season. I'm sure they will. But nonetheless, it is a good achievement for that man this season. Mr. Spencer, Mr. Norris. Pretty flawless. I would say he's getting the maximum out of that car. The podium was a good performance. The drives in Spain and Monaco when he was very under the weather, well, very under the weather with tonsillitis was impressive. Great, great first half of the season for Lando. Unfortunately, he's kind of he's kind of got his hands behind his back with this car because it is fourth, maybe fifth best car on its day. But again, he's doing levels against Daniel Ricciardo, who is struggling. In turn, thoughts on Mr. Norris. Well, I mean, he's he's done very well this season, given his equipment. I mean, I think he's maximized whatever that McLaren is capable of, and then some. You know, I mean, it's not good in race pace at all. It's definitely, definitely good in quality, and he's he's proven that he's even out-qualified Russell a couple times this season. It's a shame McLaren aren't as good as they were last year, because having a McLaren within this this little... Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari thing we got going on would be very nice. Obviously, it would be nice to have both McLarens, but we'll settle for one at this point, you know. 76 points is great. I think he hasn't really made any big mistakes or errors this season. But again, with whatever is happening in Spa, could shake up the grid in terms of performance. So maybe McLaren will be a bit closer. And I think if they are closer, we're going to probably see the Norris of early 2021. So he's done very well this year. Very well. Wouldn't that be nice? Lest we forget, gentlemen, that there is rain predicted for Sunday. So we'll see how that goes. But we're going to talk very quickly about the teams and where everyone is in the team standing so far this season. I want one sentence on each team from you gents. And we are going to start, obviously, with Red Bull Racing. And I'm just going to kick off by saying they're flying. They're killing it flawless strategy speed whatever problems they were having they weren't having them anymore it's great it's easy to look like superstars when your main competition are clowns i mean you're not wrong mr intern one sentence on red bull this season they're the best listen short sweet three words 
accurate. Mr. Spencer? The Bulls have overcome their slumber and are now running away with another title. Very snappy. Now, coming in in second place, we, of course, have Scuderia Ferrari. I somehow sense that these sentences aren't going to be quite as positive. I just have two words. Shit show. Intern? They could be the best. Awkward silence. But they're not, Mr. Spencer. Mamma mia. Here we go again. (laughs) Another championship surely won. Surely lost. Oh, God. And Mr. Spagnoli, I know you want to have a 45-minute rant, but just fit it into a sentence for me. How has nobody been sacked yet? (laughs) It's the question of the season. Everybody's asking it. When will we get an answer? Now, coming in in third, which probably a lot of people didn't see coming at the beginning of the season, we have Mercedes-AMG Patronus F1 team. I'm going to say they're turning it around. That's all I'm going to say. They are turning it around. Mr. Spagnoli? Fix your engine, you might have a chance. Mr. Spencer, Mercedes? The bucking Bronco has had some tranquilizers and is now normal again. Fair enough. In turn, one sentence from you on Mercedes this season. Not bad. Two words. I love it. It's short, it's sweet. Again, it's accurate. Coming in in fourth, Alpine. In turn, how are Alpine doing this season? It should be way further ahead of McLaren. I, I can't lie. Very true, very true. I can't argue with you. Mr. Spencer, Alpine. Okay on the track. Chaotic off it. Mr. Spagnoli? You have the fourth fastest car, definitively. For God's sake, let us see that. Great job, but expecting more. That's my thoughts. Now we're going to go to McLaren, who is only four points behind them. A disappointing fall from grace, but I hope that they can pick it back up again. Mr. Spencer? Judge Judy awaits Zach Brown as he signs his 50th driver of the week. I mean, yeah, basically. Mr. Spagnoli? McLaren ruin every engine they touch, volume four. Oh, the pain. And in turn. Look, man, if it's gonna... I don't care how much money it costs, bro. This Ricardo dude got a goal. Oh, dear. Coming in in sixth, Alfa Romeo. I'm gonna say... Good job, guys. Good job. But I want to see better. That's what I'm going to say. Mr. Spencer? Bottas and Joe are mooning the midfield. Just a shame the card sometimes just doesn't want to do the full distance. In turn, Alfa Romeo. I mean, you're definitely better than last year. I'll give you that. A market improvement is all that we could ask for. Mr. Spagnoli? Tell the evangelicals we don't need Italian Jesus in our lives. Oh, I'm sure many people would disagree with you there. But coming in hot in seventh is, I'm going to call them, they're the comeback kids. It's Haas F1 team. And that is two words from me, comeback kids. Coming right back to you, Mr. Spagnoli. Strategy that is genuinely almost as bad, if not as bad as Ferrari. Accurate. In turn, thoughts on Haas. They should have so much more points this season. Like both Mick and Magnussen have just thrown away good points in certain points this season man anything's better than last year Gunter Steiner is certainly a happier man in 2022 Mr Spencer the kids from America are not looking like fucking wankers now they just need a front wing or two they're looking like fucking legends coming in in eighth Alpha Tauri I'm gonna say I'm very disappointed just I'm just very disappointed I'm gonna leave it there in turn Mid.
they don't even deserve more than that syllable. They really don't. Mr. Spencer? Back to reality for Messrs. Gasly and Sonoda. At least the cars are looking. It might look good, but it doesn't drive good. Mr. Spagnoli? Italy does not claim this team anymore. Damn, they've really been disowned. Now, coming in in ninth, Aston Martin, second from the bottom. I want better for Vettel in his last season. That's all I'm going to say. But alas, it was not to be. Mr. Spencer? So much promise, and yet so little achieved. Back to the drawing board for 2023. Indeed. Mr. Spagnoli, thoughts on Aston Martin coming in in ninth. To paraphrase the elected mayor of Leicester, design a shit front wing, get banged. (laughs) Okay. Intern, Aston Martin. Alonso will save you. Could be, could very well be. And now in a position that they are all too familiar with in 10th place, it is, of course, Williams. I mean, what did we expect? That's all I have to say. Joe? The fact that anyone is surprised Williams are 10th staggers me. Ed, Williams? Unfortunately, the only way to make the FW44 quicker would be just to shed all the paintwork, all the bodywork off. Just leave it as a tub with the engine, the driver, the suspension and the front wheel. And maybe stick a rocket on the back. Intern? Could be worse. I'm tempted to ask how, but I'm not sure I want the answer. (laughs) Hear me out, man, all right? Like, I mean, I know the car isn't there, but they've done what they can with what they have. I mean, look look at Australia. I mean, they have three points as opposed to no points. So I guess there's... I was going to say, Shannon, did you watch this team in 2019? You don't think it can get worse? Strap in. Way worse, man. They've done all right. You know, like... It's not that bad. I don't, I don't think they're that bad. I can't lie to you. I mean, okay, okay. I'll give you that. I'll give you that much. But moving on, ladies and gentlemen, we didn't really tell you what we thought about the last race in Hungary. So we're going to jump back into our race report and tell you how we thought that race went. This is very much a bumper episode. I know you've missed us over the summer break. So we're not just giving you a mid-season review. We are giving you the Hungary race report also. Stay tuned. So. Gentlemen, Hungary, bit of a wild one. Ed, what did you think of the race overall? Erratic, fun, a little bit wet. It's kind of what you want in a race, but Max Verstappen pulled out of the bag again. From 10th to 1st, a truly brilliant strategy by Hannah Schmidt, who masterminded his victory, whilst Inaki Rueda kind of dropped the ball for Ferrari. The hard tyres were obviously not the way to go, but you ask Matteo Bonotto, it was the car's fault. Mercedes, they are seemingly back. But this, sadly, this good race has been sidelined by what has arguably been one of the most bizarre cases of musical chairs we've seen in the driver market for some time. Very, very true, Ed. I think it's definitely a good week for the Mercedes and they're showing really good form and a massive improvement. And it could be that in the second half of the season, we see them maybe start to do a little bit of challenging for at least second place. Maybe first place might be a a little bit far of a reach. But what do you think in turn? Really, really good week for Mercedes, no? I don't know where that Russell Paul came from because he didn't say a single purple sector, but he he nailed everything and he got that pole. Hamilton could have probably gotten pole too if he he didn't have that DRS failure as well. But once again... Just good damage limitation by Merck's Hamilton strategy to get him into the podium places. 
th- this form that they've found recently with the, this this podium streak with Lewis and Russell still getting those top fives has been amazing. They're thirty four points off Ferrari, I believe, which is ridiculous to think about after how the season started with them scoring that one two in Bahrain. It's been great damage limitation by Mercedes, and I think we're 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 getting closer to them potentially having race winning pace again one of these days. Yeah, it's it's good to see them just slowly get better and better. I did have a feeling at the beginning of the season when things weren't looking so good for them that it wasn't going to be looking so negative for too long of a time. I didn't think that this was the start of them, you know, being a, a mid-tier team for several years and and struggling. So it, to me, at least, it kind of makes sense that they've had this much improvement by this point in the season because they're used to winning and they clearly have the the capability within the team to build something that is very, very, very fast. So to me, it makes sense that they are where they are. But I think maybe we should probably talk about Ferrari for a little bit. And I'm going to come to Joe for that, as I always do, our resident Italian. Absolutely shocking performance from Ferrari this week, mainly from the pit wall, let's be honest. But I mean, how are you feeling? How long do I have? As long as you need to get it all out of your system. Worse than Monaco. Unironically, unquestionably worse than what happened around the streets of Monaco. And the fact that Iñaki Rueda has woken up this morning in that chief strategist position for me is unacceptable. Start of the summer break, you need to impact, you need to enact change fast before the summer shutdown happens. And I cannot believe that they haven't pulled the trigger this early. Ferrari losing second to Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship is unacceptable, and now it is looking almost like a likelihood, in which case, at the end of the season, Mattia Bonotto, much as I love the guy, he would have to go as well if Ferrari have bottled this this badly. Strategic errors across the season, the races uh, modelled prediction based on Leclerc's mistakes, Ferrari's errors. They're not competitive with Verstappen if you eliminate these errors. They're ahead of Verstappen by a solid 30, 40 points. That's the scale of which this has gone against Ferrari. Charles Leclerc has fewer podiums this season than Lewis goddamn Hamilton did, who we thought was at the end of his at the end of his peak. Some of us did at the uh, in the wake of Grand Prix like Jeddah. Let's go through some of the stupid stuff that Ferrari did this weekend. I went on a podcast a few days ago before the race, and bear in mind, I know absolutely nothing about tire wear, Ferrari strategy, how to plan a Formula One weekend. I just said at the Hungara Ring. The one thing you do not do is finish the race on hard tyres. You go to the softer compound, you have the pain in the first half. What did Ferrari do after 18 laps on the medium tyres and Leclerc had plenty of life left? Change to the hardest compound of them all. A compound which Ferrari had used exactly zero times throughout the entire weekend and thus had zero workable data on. So Ferrari would have to react to other teams. How were they doing on the hard tyres? Well, Kevin Magnussen in a newly upgraded Haas that was many tenths a lap quicker than Mick Schumacher's A-spec car was skating backwards through the field with zero grip in the cold track conditions. Daniel Ricciardo in the McLaren on the same tyres had the exact same thing happen to him. Did they just not think that the colder track conditions versus La Castellet would have an impact on grip? Did they not think the increased necessity of getting off slow corners that the Ferrari has struggled with all year would be a problem? It makes absolutely zero sense. Ferrari are incapable of running a race on their own merits. They cannot run a race according to their own tyre wear, their own strategy. They have to react to Red Bull. As soon as Verstappen came in, Hannah Schmitz hoodwinked them immediately. She, I think Ferrari had to respond straight away. 
But that was pointless because whether you come in one lap later or five laps later, you've still been undercut by definition. The moment you are undercut, that is it. You are done. You have to commit to your own strategy. And Ferrari, for some reason, went into this pointless knee-jerk reaction, which yet again has turned second and third on the grid, a disappointment in real terms after what happened to the two Red Bulls, into fourth and sixth on a track where Ferrari should have had the hands-on pace over Red Bull. Nothing more to say. This is worse than Monaco for me. It does seem like the incompetency at this point is baffling. And I think it's what's probably very hard for a lot of fans to wrap their head around is if I could figure this out, why couldn't the Ferrari strategist figure it out? Because I'm sure that there were lots of people watching that race live, seeing those hard tyres go on and just immediately going, why in the fuck would you do that? And you assume that maybe they know something that you don't or they've seen some data that we haven't seen. But then, no, 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 the exact same thing happens to the Ferraris that have happened to the previous cars that have gone onto the hards. The only data they care about is Max Verstappen. They don't care about the, sh- the tyre wear that Charles Leclerc has. They don't care about Carlos Sainz's pace. They don't care about what their engine customers are doing. It is all about reacting to Red Bull. But in those circumstances, as I've already said, it is pointless to react to the Red Bull. They have worse tyre wear than you. Don't copy them. Use your own car's strengths. And I think it's so blatantly obvious now that Red Bull can just play Ferrari, essentially. They know exactly what to do. They know that Ferrari are going to react to them and they can play them accordingly. They can play them like a violin. It's it's ridiculous. Mr. Spencer, how are you feeling about Ferrari's performance over the weekend? Have you got any ranting to add? I hate to brag, but I was in the box office seat on Sunday night when I was invited into Matteo Benotto's media session. I was quite aghast to the fact that he was seemingly blaming the car. I think it was the strategy. They had a look at what Alpine were doing on the hard. You know, they were clearly dropping back and they had a discussion, "Mm, maybe we should change this. They didn't. And look how it ended up. They finished fourth and sixth where they could have had second and fourth, maybe second and third, depending on what would happen with, with Charles in the latter stage of the race. It's mind-numbingly bizarre to put your drivers on hards when ne- they weren't working on the Alpines, they weren't working on Ricardo's McLaren, they weren't working on K-Mag's Haas. Why would you think that would be a good idea? And, and the stop near the end, well, it's too late for that. You, it's kind of damaged limitation, I'm afraid. And Ferrari have got the drivers to win the championship. They've got a car that can win the championship. They've got the engine that can win the championship. But is the team ready to win the championship? And I'm not, I'm not so sure. You look at Christian Horner. He's a solid team principal. That's why Ferrari wanted him to replace Matteo Benotto. You've got Adrian Newey, a solid designer, who is also very good at the technical side of it. You've got Hannah Schmidt, who has been put on a pedestal just for this weekend, although she should have been years for her strategies. Arguably the best strategist in Formula 1. And you've got Jonathan Wheatley, who is a good team manager and has turned Red Bull's pit crew into the fastest in Formula 1. That's an all-star team. Same with Mercedes, James Bowles, Andrew Shovlin, Ron Meadows. Benotto is just one man. He needs a solid number two. So for me, it seemed like a load of excuses. What should have been at least 35, 40 points. And now we're coming into the summer break. Max Verstappen is 80 points. People are now speculating whether he's going to win the championship by the time the F1 circus comes to Asia. In turn, do you think that Verstappen has run away with the championship now? Surely after Ferrari's behaviour, they can't be challenging him. Well, it's all going according to my predictions at the beginning of the year. 
I didn't think he'd be leading by this much this soon, but leads a lead. I can't say Ferrari have done anything to try and mitigate it. I know it's funny. All this Ferrari talk is just making people forget like how bad Haas are at strategies as well. Haas don't get enough credit for being absolutely garbage at strategies, man. This is the third race this season where Magnussen has had an issue on lap one. In Spain, that was his fault. Canada, kind of his fault. Today, it wasn't. He was literally just an innocent bystander this time. Has put him on hards. They immediately put him on hards. He literally got overcut by so many people because the hards were that bad. And the whole grid saw that. The whole grid saw Magnussen get overcut by people he started behind. And they're like, you know something? We should try that. For no reason. It was, a, it was a cold day. Grip was all over the place. Tires were slidey. We saw Ricardo pit for hards. He came out. Couldn't even go into turn two properly. He hit Stroll. Got himself a five-second pen. Right? And Ferrari, from the lead, pit Charles Leclerc onto hards. And if I'm to take even one positive from this, at least they didn't do the same thing with Sainz. At least they kept one of their drivers on a somewhat smart strategy. Even on top of the hard stint, Binotto might have been onto something when he said the car wasn't really there because then Leclerc pit for softs and couldn't even catch Sergio? How? That makes even less sense to me than the hard stint. He pit for fresh supers and could not catch Sergio. Why? How? How is that possible? Hamilton pit for supers and he, he drove his way all the way to P2. Yet Leclerc, who was leading this race a couple minutes ago, pits for the same tire. Round the same time, maybe a couple laps earlier or late. I don't remember. I think it was earlier. Nothing. Couldn't even catch Perez. Are you mad? Perez is off the pace all week and you can even catch him on softs. I don't know what's going on with that team. Okay. I love how them losing is becoming the headline as opposed to others winning. That's that's the real funny part in all of this. Ferrari losing is getting more attention than the people that are beating them. That's mad to me. All right, <laughs> but it's it's not my headache because I don't rep them, so I sleep well at night. It's it's not, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. As long as you're sleeping well at night, in turn, that's truly all I care about. But that is actually a very very good point, and I think it's something to do with just how high expectations were for Ferrari at the beginning of the season, as to why them being so terrible is making more headlines than the fact that Mercedes got a 2-3 podium this weekend or Max Verstappen's performance or whatever else. I think as far as the rest of the finishing grid, there's not a ton to talk about, to be honest. Uh, We saw the two Alpines in eighth and ninth, which was a little bit disappointing for them, but we know exactly why it happened. Lando Norris started fourth, finished seventh. Bit rubbish, to be honest. Daniel Ricciardo, terrible after his five second pen ended up finishing 15th which is wait don't go I any mean, further because i want to talk about that listen man I know. oh, oh god in turn taken away so i'll be the first to tell you that ricardo has underperformed this season can't lie to you them pitting him on hards must have been like some kind of setup that must have been some conspiracy bro I, I at least understand Norris doing it because he was able to pit where he was and come out ahead of both Alpines who were also on hards. So it at least made some sense covering off the Alpines on the same tire. But Ricardo was surrounded by people on supers and mediums. And you saw 
You you bodied Alpine earlier on mediums. Ricardo did a double overtake on both Alpines on his mediums and left them in the dust. And you're surrounded by people on that tire and you pit him on hards? Why? Like, listen, I even t- I tweeted, I was like, listen, I, I, Ricardo's been pretty bad this season, but like, you can't, there's no way you can get on him for that. How can you, how can you pit Ricardo on hards when everyone around him is on a tire with more grip? Stroll tried to pass him, got spun by him and still passed him like five laps later. It was that bad. But Ferrari and Ricardo have no excuse. Whoever greenlit the Leclerc pit stop and the Ricardo pit stop need to be up at night pondering their future in this sport, man. They should be shaking in their boots every time their phone has a notification because they're worried it might be their call for resignation. Because I, I, I don't know what some of these people were thinking, man. I can at least excuse Hass. Because they were just trying to do some risky stuff. That's all I will say. And now it's time to take a walk down our favourite grid. And likely the only grid we will ever have access to. It's time to come back to Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. What lies in the future of the man of the moment, Oscar Piastri? After his brutal rejection of Alpine, we're still yet to find out where he plans to spend 2023 or if he's just made the biggest mistake of his career. The strongest whispers are that he's going to McLaren to replace fan favourite Daniel Ricciardo, which is very much yet to be confirmed, and if true, raises yet another question. What is to become of the Australian fan favourite? Now, for some more gossip that doesn't actually concern silly season, which is rare at the moment, I know. It's rumoured that Audi is set to take over a majority stake of 75% of the Sauber F1 team. The new chassis will be built in Hinwil in one of the most modern wind tunnels in F1, and the power unit would be built in Germany at the Audi HQ. The announcement could be made as soon as this weekend, but as yet, of course, is still simply conjecture. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, dear listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Audi, Alpha, I'm not going to, we're not going to waste loads of time talking about Daniel Ricciardo and Oscar Piastri because goodness knows what's going to happen there. We're just waiting for an announcement. It's all pure gossip. However, I do think that this Audi Sauber news is actually quite exciting and could mark quite an exciting turn for their team in the future. What do you think, Mr. Spagnoli? Can you hear that, Shannon? Hear what? That's the sound of everybody being sad about Sauber leaving Formula One at last. This team celebrated... This team celebrated a 25th anniversary a few years ago with a special livery. What are you celebrating? You have achieved the square root of Jack All over the course of that period. The only achievement Sauber has has in their entire Formula One history is ruining Robert Kubitz's shot at a Formula One World Championship. He deserved it in 2008 over Felipe Massa and Lewis Hamilton. And BMW Sauber ruined it deliberately ahead of the next year. That's all I have to say. I don't like the fact that Volkswagen are trying to buy their way into Formula One without setting up their new team. It's I understand the financial implications and how it's so much safer for them, blah, blah, blah. They have the resources to set up a team if they really want to. And if you want to come into Formula One with your own engine, you damn well should do if you're a manufacturer that big. But honestly, I do classic teams every single week. Teams that have won like one race in history that were only around for three years, more people will miss them than will miss Sauber. I guarantee you. That's harsh, and that's quite ridiculous, if I'm being honest with you. Sauber are an illustrious name in motorsport. Yes, okay, they may have not won five million Grand Prix. How many races have they won? One. Wow. They've been on the grid for nearly 30 years. I think that's pretty good going, if you ask me. I'm going to hope that you're not being serious with those stats, but okay, Mr. Spencer. In turn, would you be excited to see Audi in F1? I'm excited for all newcomers. Well, not all, but I'm excited for most newcomers in Formula One. Audi are no different. If they're joining the sport, man, they better be serious because my goodness, uh, as everything else in motorsport for them collapsed, all right? WRT is gone. Rene Rast is gone. They ain't got no GT program no more. <laughs> no hypercar in sight. So if, if you're really coming into F1, man, you better cook. Because you've sacrificed enough to get here. That's right. They better have their pots, their pans, their fire, their hob. They better be ready to, as intern says, cook. Now it's time to jump in the race director's time machine. And Hold, hold on a minute. Am I not allowed an opinion on Audi? You've already given your opinion on Sauber. No, I'm happy that Audi are coming in. I just hope they bring a junior team. Maybe Jost. Jost Racing can come in. It's good news for the sport. Volkswagen are investing more. Great. Can we have another team, please, as well as you're buying Sauber? Hopefully it all works out. Happy, slappy, slappy. And we're all singing Kumbaya at the end of it. There, done. Can I get back in my time machine now? uh, No, because (laughs) normally I actually agree with Joe. I think he's quite a sober judge of things, all things F1. I had a feeling this was coming. However, when Sauber came into the sport in in the mid-90s, they came in with a real splash. They had Carl Wendlinger et al racing for them they did ridiculously well and um mr sauber 
gave up the t- well sold the team to BMW and when BMW imploded struggled uh to buy the team back and because he wanted to keep the factory open he saw that he had a responsibility to the people in Hinwell and the fact that they're still on the grid is all down to his tenacity i do love a trier and sauber are the quintessential triers who have in their heart and in their dna it is that spirit of f1 i just want to go back on mute now as uh, producer royfield i have the last word because i'm i'm editing this thing and uh, there you go I will remind everybody this is coming from a man whose favourite 1980s Italian Formula 1 team is Osella. But yes, make up your own mind. At least we not forget, without Peter Salber's involvement in motorsport or with the Mercedes brand, Michael Schumacher would have not been discovered. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Imagine how different F1 would be. You know it's big when producer Royfield gets on the mic. Can I get back in my time machine now? Because we're, we're yes. late, yes, you may. We're late yes, you for the may. time machine because it's time for looking back with Ed Spencer. To choose a classic race from Spa is like choosing which cake to have for dessert. You simply can't choose one. But if I had to choose one, it had to be the one which had everything you could have wanted in a race. Drama, action and the heartwarming ending. It's a story of when Damon Hill and Eddie Jordan danced all night and Michael Schumacher rage quit. It's the story of Spa, 1998. The Ardennes Forest welcomed Formula 1 for round 13 of the 1998 World Championship, with an unlikely title battle seemingly coming to a boil. Mika Hakkinen had led the championship since the kickoff in Australia, but now Michael Schumacher, spurred on by a rejuvenated Ferrari team and the need to seek redemption after being disqualified from the 1997 World Championship, was seven points away from taking the championship lead. David Coulthard was the only other driver who was mathematically in with a chance of becoming a world champion. Still, with a gap of 29 points separating him and his teammate, the Scot would need a miracle if he were to snatch the crown. Qualifying had taken place in unseasonably sunny conditions, with Hakkinen on pole ahead of Coulthard. But on road two, there was a surprise. Damon Hill had put his Jordan foot on the grid ahead of Schumacher, and Eddie Irvine, whilst reigning world champion Jack Villeneuve started sixth despite a monstrous practice crash at Eau Rouge. The pre-race sunshine gave way to heavy rain, set to last for the entire race, meaning that visibility would be virtually non-existent. But when the green light went out, Akinen got a great start, with Villeneuve leaping up into second, head of Schumacher as they left the source for the first time. But behind the top three, Coulthard hit a damp pad and slammed straight into the barrier, taking Irvine out. Yes! Yes! It's go! And Coulthard drags! Hakkinen gets away well. Look at Eddie Irvine coming up on the inside. Villeneuve goes up into second position. Schumacher is down into about sixth position. Bad start by the Ferrari. Great start by Eddie Irvine. Villeneuve! Look at Villeneuve! And into the wall! Who was that? Coulthard, Coulthard in the wall. that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What followed was an orgy of destruction, as 12 cars blinded by the spray and bought by Coulthard's Rick McLaren slammed into each other on the run down to Radion, spraying carbon fibre and loose tyres into the afternoon skyline, narrowly avoiding the spectators who ducked for cover as the tail enders tailboned into the midfielders. 
The race was stopped immediately, but amazingly, none of the drivers were injured. With teams now frantically getting spare cars ready for the drivers involved in the pileup. Unfortunately for Messrs. Rossett, Barrichello, Parnis, and Sato, their race was run as the Tyrrell, Stewart, Prost, and Arrows teams had both their cars wrecked in the start line schmozzle, meaning that only one of their drivers could take the restart. With the track now cleaned up, 18 starters took the restart, but with Hackenham bogging down on the line with as Hill leapt up into lead approaching La Source. Then, as they exited the corner, Schumacher and Hackenham made contact, spinning the fin round into the pathway Johnny Herbert, who collided with the McLaren, taking both out on the spot. Schumacher wasted no time getting past Irvine for second on the Kevel straight, whilst at Lecoum, Coulthard, who had made his second dreadful start the weekend, collided with Alex Wurtz, taking the Austrian out as the safety car came out to restore order. When racing resumed on lap three, Schumacher went on the attack eating into Hill's gap before sending an opportunity at the bus stop on lap 8, diving through on the inside to take the race lead. But it wasn't all playing saving for Ferrari as Irvine trying too hard lost it coming into Lake Combe, smashing his front wing to pieces and forcing him to the pits as Jos Verstappen joined the long list of retirements. Toro Takagi was next out on lap 10 after spinning off, whilst Vilna's once promising race ended on lap 16 with a spin whilst he briefly led from Schuacher and Hill who had come in for fresh boots. Esteban Tuero also joined the list of retirements on lap 17 with a gearbox failure. But Schumacher was seemingly in no mood to sit and wait behind the bat markers, nearly colliding with Pedro Diniz on the run down to Rivage. Sensing the danger, John Todd marched down to McLaren's pit wall to ask a soon lap Coulthard to let Schumacher pass without any dramas. Coulthard tried to let Schumacher through, but the German who knew nothing of the drama in the, in the pit lane didn't see the Scott letting him through. Oh, God! Michael Schumacher hits David Coulthard and is out of the Belgian Grand Prix. Maybe he should have been a bit more circumspect about trying to pass him, but he is out and Damon Hill is in the lead. Pair both drove back to the pits to seemingly retire from the race, but Schumacher wasn't looking to quietly walk back into the paddock to lick his wounds. Oh, no. The usually unflappable, ice-cool German turned into an erupting volcano. Rushing down the pit lane with his Ferrari team in tow as he tried to engage in some sparring with Coulthard, only for a wall of McLaren mechanics to push the German away, who had asked Scott a simple question. Are you trying to fucking kill me? Ferrari's wet and miserable afternoon was completed when Irvine spun out, with Hill very nearly joining the Irishman after straight-lining the bus stop. As if there wasn't enough chaos, Giancarlo Fisichella, unsighted, ploughed into Shinji Nakano's Minardi at the bus stop, causing a horrific accident which miraculously saw both drivers escape without injury, with Nakano getting back into the race along with Coulthard as the safety car came out again. By halfway, only eight cars remained, with Hill and Raul Schumacher leading a Jordan 1-2 as they made their final stops with John and Lazy third ahead of Heinz Alfredson and Denitz, with Jano truly sixth and a lap behind as racing got back underway with a handful of laps left to go. Sensing that a 1-2 was possible, Hill went on the team radio and said that if he and Young and Schumacher raced, they could end up colliding, costing John their first Grand Prix victory and handing a Lazy the win on, the, on a platter. But if they didn't race, they'd wrap up the team's first 1-2, and Eddie John took his lead driver's advice and ordered Schumacher's engineer Sam Michael to tell Ralph not to overtake Hill, which after some radio silence, he obliged, handing John an emotional one-two with Hill taking his first victory for just under two years. 
a lazy gave Saub a plenty to smile about with third ahead of French and Deniz, as truly finally secured Prost's first point of the year with sixth. The drama didn't stop there, as Schumacher now doubly enraged that his brother had his maiden Grand Prix win snatched away, engaged in a slanging match with Jordan, which very nearly turned into Schumacher's second sparring session of the day. However, Jordan won the day, as Schumacher brought his brother out of his contract, coughing up a juicy £2 million in the process, much to the delight of Eddie Jordan, who must have been wondering if his Christmases and his birthdays had come all in one. At the next round in Monza, Schumacher and Coulthard, now the most hated man in Italy, shook hands and reconciled, with the German getting his revenge by taking victory in front of the Defosi, as Coulthard's faint championship hopes went up, went up in smoke. Schumacher had won the battle, but Hakkinen won the war, taking the championship in Suzuka when Schumacher stole from pole and then picked up a puncher when trying in vain to close up on the fin. As for Hill, this would be his final victory in Formula 1 as he retired from the sport at the end of 1999. Meanwhile, Ralph Schumacher moved to Williams, where he would stay for six seasons and would become a Grand Prix winner. We do love looking back with Ed Spencer, and that was certainly quite a dramatic race to look back on, I'd say. Very well chosen this week. But if you don't mind, it's time to jump back in my time machine. Because it's time to come back to the present day and talk about news of the week. As we come into the end of the summer break, we are very much into race week right now. It's time for some news. And my news is that Christian Horner wants to see certain classic tracks protected from dropping off the calendar. He has said that Monza, Silverstone and Spa are big historic tracks. We should ring fence those and protect them. This is what he said to Sky Sports F1 this week, bearing in mind that the future of Spa and Monaco is currently uncertain. Interesting, and I would say optimistic, because let's be honest, F1 is all about money and advertising. They're not going to ring fence a track if they don't feel like it's going to make them money or they're not paying them or whatever it is. So very nice romantic thoughts, Christian. Thank you very much. Mr. Spagnoli, what is your news of the week? I've just got to respond to that. I'm very surprised that Christian Horner is so keen on preserving tracks that he finished last at in every junior category he ever competed in. My news story of the week is not a news story. I'd like to quash the fact that this is news. I'm already sick of the fact people are talking about it. Antonio Giovinazzi, who some people, not myself, refer to as Italian Jesus, has two FP1 appearances for the Haas Formula 1 team scheduled at the Italian, obviously, Grand Prix, and the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. A load of people because it's F1 silly season, are convinced that this definitively means he's replacing Mick Schumacher. Why else would they have him in FP1 if he wasn't replacing Schumacher? The reason he's doing FP1, a test and reserve role for them, is because he's one of Haas's test and reserve drivers. There is no story here. Antonio Giovinazzi is doing two FP1 appearances. It does not mean he is coming back next year. End. It'll be funny as hell if he does. I hope somebody clips that just in case. I'm sure it'll delay my passport application by another six months as well. It all stays on the record at the end of the day. It's immortalised in history now that it's been mentioned on the Race Directors podcast. And I do agree with you. It makes sense to have your test and reserve driver having some experience, especially in a new regulation car. In turn, what is your news of the week? My news of the week is that Andretti, they're making moves, man, don't ever tell me that they're not good enough to enter this sport bro you see you see what they just purchased huge investments they are looking at what this looks like a headquarter a big old facility that they just purchased somewhere 
I don't remember. It's somewhere in America. It's not in Europe, but Indiana, my clearly friend. Clearly, when Indiana. you look at, yeah, it's in Indiana. I and mean, you look at the facilities, it, it definitely looks like something that's built for Formula One. And I think this further hammers the point that they are indeed serious about joining the sport one day, whether that be before or after 2026, we'll find out. But yeah, man, it, it just feels the fire that you, you can tell these guys really want to do it and they think they can. And I think they can too. A lot of people out there that don't, we'll see about that. Agreed. It does look like a copy and paste of the MTC, but you know, when Zach Brown's your best friend, why not copy his homework? Ed Spencer, what is your news of the week? Well, the news of the week comes to no surprise of anyone. F1 will not be returning to Russia anytime soon. Stefan Domenicali has confirmed that we won't be racing in Russia. Politi- Russian politicians are very active angrily saying they've got some years on their contract. The end. It's the same old guff. And to be honest with you, let's completely forget we went to Sochi Autodrome. It was an awful circuit that made TIA look like the green hell. Um, yeah. And also there's been rumours that Mick Schumacher might be going to Alpine. Next. What a bombshell. And I will say probably the only person crying about that Russian news is a certain Nikita Mazepin. Let's be honest, none of the rest of us care. Moving on, back into the time machine, because it is time for classic teams of F1 lore with Joe Spagnoli. Mercedes' dominance post-2013 may have reintroduced German silver to the front of the F1 grid, but for all their pride before crashing out at Hockenheim, the team itself are as British as they get. In fact, true German teams are a rarity in F1 history, perhaps due in part to the mess of this week's classic tale, when the Zack Speed Touring Car team decided to try their luck on the biggest stage of all. Founded in the late 60s, just a stone's throw from the actual Nürburgring, Eric Zakowski's Zack Speed are that rarest of things, a racing team better known for their modified touring cars than their XF1 team. If the Niederzissen-based outfits Ford Capris were legendary, then the existence of a Zack Speed F1 team is almost a complete mystery. Then again, that may well be because their F1 cars could well have been beaten by their souped-up Ford Coupes. By the early 1980s, the Germans were running Ford's works effort in Group C prototype racing, and even achieving modest success with one Jonathan Palmer, the father of recent Renault driver Jolien. But once Ford Germany pulled their support, Zack Speed had to look elsewhere, preferably on a smaller scale. However, their very own Group C engine, now homeless on the major racing scene, was a 1.5 litre turbo, and thus completely legal for Formula One. And so, for 1985, Roy Brown's carbon fibre original Zack Speed 841 was given a full-time Formula One entry, piloted yet again by Jonathan Palmer. Aside from the giants of Ferrari, Zack Speed were the only entry running their own chassis and engine combination, but the do-it-yourself approach didn't pay off in their debut year, with no points and only one recorded finish. Undeterred though, they were back for 1986, correcting their failure with one car by running two cars. In fact, over their five-year history in F1, Zack Speed fielded commentary legend Martin Brundle, F3000 champion Christian Danner, touring car maestro Bernd Schneider, etc. Some very impressive drivers. And Hubert Rottenhatter. 
However, to say that their cars were ill-engineered would be an understatement. The home-built engine was unreliable even by 80s F1 standards, but quite frankly a tag Porsche block wouldn't have been able to save these designs. Low on grip and aero sophistication, their talented young drivers were more like bullfighters, and Brundle's miraculous fifth place at Imola 87 would be the only points the team ever scored. Nigel Mansell starts his last lap of knowing that an Englishman in fifth place has at least been replaced by another Englishman, Martin Brundle at the Zach Speed, and this will be the first World Championship point of... In fact, Zach Speed's highest ever qualifying position was 13th in Mexico that same year, but they'd soon be dreaming of such lofty heights. Their 1988 car barely qualified, struggling against even the non-turbo cars now making up much of the F1 grid, but things got even worse once those turbochargers were banned. As a result of their pointless year, Zach Speed would have to face pre-qualifying in 1989, and this all but killed the entire team. On only two occasions did Bernd Schneider make the race's starting grid, and he didn't finish either event. And that's Bernd Schneider, the German driver in the Zack Speed with the Yamaha engine, is out of the Brazilian Grand Prix to join amongst the other major retirements, Berger, Bootsen and Piquet. Their customer Yamaha engines were, if anything, even more temperamental than Zack Speed's own. The team folded before 1990 without their assets being sold on, and F1's most truly independent team left the sport with barely a whimper. I'm going to be honest, I had not heard of Zack Speed before this segment. What the hell is a Zack Speed? With the exception of producer Roy Field here, the knowledge of Zack Speed is just, it's very, very low just in general. Their Wikipedia page, which I was using as a crucial source for that piece, is suspiciously short. For a, the, the F1 section of there is tiny for a team that was in there for a few years. And I think the biggest, the biggest indicator of just how unknown and anonymous and how little Zack Speed achieved... Uh, was my father, Papa Spagnoli, who watched a hell of a lot of F1 in the 1980s because he was an aggressive smoker at that time. And I asked him if he remembered the Zack Speed Formula 1 team. He said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I vaguely remember them being around. They were only around for a year or so, weren't they? No, Dad, no. They were around for five full seasons in Formula 1. They just achieved so little with the amount of money that was pumped into them. What team, what works team in the history of Formula 1 with that much money pumped into them? achieved such a small amount? Producer Royfield may have the answer. I think they were the quintessential spunkers of sponsorship cash. They came into the sport with a little bit of a dash, and because they were a works team, they were given much more kudos than they actually deserved because they were producing their own engines and and chassis, which was unheard of uh, for for a new team with little pedigree to come in and, and do. But... I was surprised when um, I edited the piece that they've been around. They were around for five years, but they did. Um, they, they they gave Jonathan Palmer his first race in Formula One. He was with them for quite some time. Christian Danner. They had some decent-ish drivers, but yeah, they flattered to deceive. That was uh, Zach Speed. They were always at the back, but they were the the big boys at the back. Zach Speed, I feel underachieved in F1, but you need to look at their motorsports and legacy. They were, they've been pretty consistent running in the DTM, running in sports cars, and they did have some success. And the cars were very elegant to look at before they were either smashed up or by the side of the road with the engine gone. 
and the delivery, the red and white, is quite beautiful. And funny little note, the West logos, when they had to go to non-tobacco races, Joe, do you want to guess what they changed them to? What did they have to change it to? East. <laughs> In 1980s Germany. Yes. Not an intelligent thing to do. Wow. That's a Google image search. Yes, it is. You can find it on all forms of the internet. The East Zaxbeed. Now we are jumping right back into the present tense and it is time. It's time for everyone's favourite part of the podcast and a very momentous moment because we are going to do our very first plonker of the season so far. I hope you gentlemen are ready. Joe. Plonker of the season. Right. I have a feeling people already know who I'm going to say, and I'd like to make it clear before I say his name, I do not want him to be sacked. I do not want him to lose. I don't want him to lose his home. I don't want him to become destitute. I don't personally hate him. However, when Mattia Binotto said that strategy had only cost Ferrari one race, I was almost crying and laughing simultaneously. Ferrari chief strategist Ignacio Iñaki Rueda has cost Ferrari at least five guaranteed podiums this year. He has cost them at least 60 points this year with his bad decision making. Ferrari strategy has never, never in my life been worse than it is right now. Iñaki Rueda, you are responsible for the fact that we do not have a title battle on either front this year. Plonker of the season. I mean, literally no one saw that coming. I'm joking, we all saw that coming. Mr. Spencer, plonker of the season so far. Sprint races. What have they achieved? Uh, nothing. And also, can we bin these stupid crypto medals? Good lord. You wouldn't hand these out to your seven-year-old child at a sports day in Northamptonshire for winning the egg and spoon race. Christ almighty. Also, honourable mentions to Monaco catering. Awful, awful stuff. I mean, thanks for the croissants. They were gone within minutes. The tro- some of the trophy makers. Why do you have a career? Oh, come on. You've wasted your life designing a Livorno trophy. And also, a quick shout out to the people who bought the uh, fake marina. What a good idea in Miami. You really are a class act. Bravo. Get yourself a happy meal. We've had half an entire season and you still found a way to talk about catering. I'm sorry, did anyone notice the fact that Plonker of the Week, Ed didn't choose, forget not choosing a driver, he didn't even choose a human being. The concept of sprint races. He never does. Almost never does. I've, I've come to accept the fact now that Ed will almost never choose an actual living, breathing, sentient being for his Plonker of the Week or Plonker of the Season for that matter. And it's it's fine. It's called having a reputation to maintain and also trying to be impartial. Fair enough. We'll give you that. We'll give you that. Monaco Catering, get in the bin. Producer Royfield, do you have a plonker of the season so far? Before I come to intern. Uh, You put me on the spot. It has to be... You know, I'm going to go with Spagnoli here. The way that Ferrari have disgraced themselves with strategy, you have to, you have to say consistently... They are the plonkers of the season so far. I'm just going to say, producer Royfield, that Joe absolutely thought then that you had chosen him 
as plonker of the season so far. A shard of ice went through my heart. You have no idea how that felt. Gladly for you, no. You can mend that little broken heart of yours. But in turn, we're coming to you. I want to know who your plonker of the season is. And you better tell him to fix up. It's Ricardo. I mean, who else could it be? He has 19 points in half a season. Are you like, who else could it be? Y'all here talking about Ferrari, bro. Like, when has Ferrari bottling stuff ever been news? Ricardo having 19 points? Nor- How much did Norris have? 76? Don't get, don't get me wrong, all right? I, I know it, 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 it isn't all his fault. There's no way it is. I, I've seen McLaren screw him over with my own eyes, especially in Hungary. No one even talks about Hungary. Hungary is egregious to me, but like... He has nine... That's less than a win's worth of points in a car that's beefing fourth in the constructors. The only reason McLaren are even close to Alpine is because of Norris. Like, what's this dude doing? How much did they pay this dude? You you pay this dude like 20 plus million to score 19 points in half a season? What the hell is he going to do in the second half? 19? That's ridiculous. Let me actually... No, you can edit this out if you want. Let me let me pull up the standings. Let me see exactly who he's behind. Run me the driver's standings right now. Here we He's are. He's behind Kevin Magnussen right now, my friend. Behind Magnussen. Oh my goodness. Don't kill me. Do not kill me in here today. No, 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 no. Okay, let's see. He's behind Magnussen. Alonso. He's be- Alonso with, with 5 billion retirements. He's behind Alonso. He's barely ahead of Gasly. He's barely ahead of Vettel. Like, what's, what's this guy doing? What is he doing, bro? Like, how how do you have 19? Shannon, can I change my vote uh, from Ferrari strategy team and uh, put it with Ricardo? Inter makes a compelling case that Ferrari have only screwed over themselves in that five races, whereas uh, Daniel Ricardo's done it in numerous. So, yes, I'm changing my vote. Well, there you go, Roy. I mean, if I was earning this much money and I scored 19 points, I couldn't sleep at night. The hell? I don't think McLaren are going about this replacing him stuff well at all. You know, I think they're making it way more embarrassing that it ne- than it needs to be. People, they've been so poor at finding a replacement for him that people are actually feeling bad for him despite the fact that he scored 19 points in half a season in a car where someone else scored 76. 19! That's mental to me, bro. We, we look at we, we just roasted Alpha Tauri earlier for being mid. Gasly has 16 points and Sonoda has 11. That's almost Ricardo level. And they're eighth. Vettel Vettel missed the first two races of COVID with, with COVID. Had the worst race of his whole life in Melbourne. And he's like three points behind Ricardo. In an Aston. What's this dude doing? What is he do bro? What is he doing? I need to Alright, the car's mid. We've acknowledged that. But it's, it's clearly good enough to score at least 76 points. And this dude out here scoring 19. That, I don't even know if that's quarter of 70. I think. It's exactly. Maybe, maybe, but I don't know. Maybe he'll do well in the second half. Though. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I knew you were going to bring the smoke. But, 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 I, but, I wasn't but, expecting but. a forest fire. But, 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 but. 
He's a very popular driver in Formula One, says F1 Twitter. Great for marketing, but it's time for my plonker of the season so far. And I had some ideas coming into this podcast who I was going to choose, but like producer Royfield, I have been... I don't know if the word is influenced or bulldozed uh, into choosing Daniel Ricciardo because after that manifesto from intern, I kind of can't justify choosing anyone else. So that means that for one of our very rare occasions, we do have a majority vote um, after Royfield switched sides. It's it's Daniel Ricciardo for plonker of the season so far. We do have a definitive winner and... um, yeah, as intern said, maybe maybe he'll pick it up in the second half of the season, but who knows? Um, maybe someone should send him a copy of this podcast so that he can, I don't know, get some fire under him or something, or cry. We'll see. But, gentlemen, on that fiery note, that is all we have time for today. We do appreciate it, ladies and gentlemen. If you have made it to the end of this bumper episode marking the end of the summer break and the beginning of the second half of this 2022 season we would invite you to follow us on twitter if you don't already which is at race underscore directors or like us on facebook at the race directors podcast make sure you're subscribed make sure you're leaving us reviews we greatly appreciate it this is our first halfway point in our first season of this podcast i think we've done a fabulous job gents and that is all I stand by everything I said about Sauber. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.